I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, I've got a packed podcast for you. We're going to hear from Sufjan Stevens going ambient, Mythos celebrating 25 years of exotic chill, and our 22nd icon of Echoes, Patrick O'Hearn. This is such a packed podcast that I'm not going to give you an advertisement. I'm also not going to pitch you on supporting Echoes and the Echoes podcast because, you know, it's the only place where you could hear Sufjan Stevens, Mythos, and Patrick O'Hearn interviews all in one location. And that you could do that at echoes.org by simply clicking the support button. That's echoes.org. And now, let's hear from Sufjan Stevens, who has used the pandemic and personal loss to create a five-volume, deep, ambient release called Convocations. Over the last two decades, Sufjan Stevens has built a reputation for confessional songs and quirky observations like those on his 50 States project, which planned an album dedicated to every state. He's only completed two of those, Michigan and Illinois, but he's recorded seven other solo albums exploring a range of styles from singer-songwriter to electronica. His most personal was his 2015 release, Carrie and Lowell, a beautifully tortured album about the death of his mother. I forgive you, mother. I can hear you. Sufjan Stevens' latest album is actually five albums in one, and it's a departure for the singer who doesn't utter a word on it. It's an all-instrumental, deeply ambient electronic set called Convocations. The music itself is, you know, it's clearly not narrative and there's there's no verbal information. It's all just, just sound and mood and soundscape and it's ambient. And, and I think that that's probably indicative of like my state of mind where I was just, I was just rendered speechless in a way like all of us have been, where we just don't know how to respond or how, how to react to what's going on, you know, around us. The five-volume convocations emerged out of isolation and death. First, there was a pandemic. When COVID-19-related restrictions were imposed in early 2020, everyone's life was disrupted. Many musicians felt it acutely, cut off from audiences, collaborators, and most aspects of their daily lives. For Sufjan Stevens, the transition was dramatic and not. I lived and worked in New York for 20 years, and then in 2019, I had been planning on 
moving upstate to the Catskills, and so I had built a studio up here. And that's where I've been since before the pandemic. So I've actually been almost like self-isolating even pre-COVID-19. On top of the generalized gloom of the COVID-19 pandemic, in September of 2020, it got intensely personal. Stephen's father passed away suddenly. Also, it just all happened so quickly. It was unexpected in a way, because he had been in and out of hospital so much that we just thought, okay, he's pulled through so many of these kind of alarming moments. We just thought that he would be okay. The whole thing was just, it was a mess and so unexpected. While his father's death was not the direct result of COVID-19, the pandemic still had a profound impact. I couldn't even say goodbye to my dad in person. I had to say goodbye over the phone. And, you know, and everyone had to, like, was, was doing that. Or people were dying in, like, the ICU without any, you know, being able to say goodbye to anybody. After a few months, he began working through his feelings, creating a series of short, abstract electronic works that became Convocations. Going electronic is not an unprecedented move for Stevens. Although he's best known as a singer-songwriter, his albums, The Age of Ads and The Ascension, as well as Aporia, a collaboration with his stepfather, Lowell Brams, were also largely electronic. For Convocations, his collection of analog synthesizers was the only sonic palette that could convey his emotions. That was all I had in me, you know? It's like I couldn't pick up a guitar. I needed to just be pressing buttons and twisting knobs. I've always loved instrumental music and ambient music and like mood music and all that stuff. It's always been like part of my musical construction and it's been part of who I am. But you know, I'm, I'm primarily known as like a singer-songwriter and I tell stories and all that stuff is really, really fundamental to what I do. But I just felt like recently, based on this whole pandemic and this experience and losing my dad and feeling isolated and feeling alone and feeling kind of forced to confront my mortality, I, I just didn't have anything to say.
Convocations evolved over an intense, concentrated period of improvisation in the middle of December, an exploration of his grief in the depths of a northeastern winter. I made this, all this music in isolation. I felt very alone. And I recorded it all in sequence. So the first track is the first thing I recorded. And the last track is the last thing I recorded. So it's definitely like a testament or a record of, you know, a lived emotional and creative experience that I went through in December, which is for me the most difficult month because it's like the dead of winter. And here on the East Coast, the sun sets at like 3.30. It's cold, everything's dead, you know, and... So that was really difficult for me. Convocations is divided into five volumes that represent his emotional journey. Meditation, lamentation, revelation, celebration, and incantation. I wanted it to feel almost like a religious experience, you know, for the listener. And I wanted it to feel like moving through, like bearing down and moving through the process of pain and acceptance and restoration. The music is generating from a very personal experience of grieving, but I also felt like I wasn't alone, that I was sharing that with other people, even though I couldn't be with them. And that's that's where the kind of Convocations maybe comes in, because Convocations is like a coming together. Um, and I think music like this, that doesn't have words, I think can be very mysterious and very transcendent and very restorative in ways that narrative songwriting can't. For me, it just felt like my only way of managing that experience of loss and isolation was to just become entrenched in sound, you know? And there wasn't, like, I had nothing, I had nothing to say. There were no stories to be told here.
Sufjan Stevens might not be able to articulate this emotional journey in words yet, but Convocations offers a sonic account of his quest for a sense of peace after an emotionally difficult year. It's not a story with a tidy ending. The final piece on the album is dissonant and unresolved. Well, because then you got to start all over again. <laughs> it's not like you've arrived and that you've made it and that you've worked through this and that life is going to be the land of milk and honey henceforth. No, it's like, I feel like maybe that's just like a bit of a, of a reminder that this is, this is not over, that this is a cycle. Sufjan Stevens, Convocations. It's out on Asthmatic Kitty Records. I'll have a link for Convocations by Sufjan Stevens in the posting for this podcast at echoes.org. And now, a group that's been around for 25 years out of Canada. They just released a new collection of their work, plus five new recordings called 25. This is Mythos. music movement had already crested by the mid-1990s, but coming out of that was another sound that infused New Age-style moods and melodies with electronic rhythms borrowing more from dance music. Enigma and B-Tribe were a couple of artists emerging with that sound, and in their wake came a Canadian band called Mythos. They just released the album 25 for their quarter-century anniversary. Mythos was a band that fell on the sensual side of New Age. I remember reading a blog and we were voted like in the top five artists to make love to. So, you know, maybe there is a sensualness to Mythos, uh, but definitely, yeah, there's a sensuality. I don't know. I think of our music more as to like do something creative to or to just listen to when you're in a mellow mood. But maybe you haven't made love to the right person yet. Yeah, maybe. And you did have an album called Eros. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're not owning the lovemaking thing, are you? I guess not. Yeah, I just, I remember thinking, I remember just laughing when I heard about that blog. But I've, I, yeah, I just never really have thought of it that way. That's Bob Deeth and Paul Schmidt of Mythos, looking back across their 25-year career. They seemed to arrive in 1996 with an image and sensibility that was fully formed, 
from the sensuality of the music to their album covers, all done by Gil Gravel and usually featuring a woman in a futuristically surreal fantasy motif. There's a bit of surrealness, but also, let's face it, we do have acoustic guitar, but very much so the, the melody is driven by female vocals. And so I think having strong women in our artwork it really has always been an important part of what we're, we're doing. Bob Deeth is speaking to me on Zoom from his home outside of Vancouver. In his mid-50s, with short hair shading to gray and a broad smile to fit his equally broad face, he looks like he might be a lawyer or even a politician. In fact, he's both. I'm a professional musician and also an entertainment lawyer, and I'm the member of the Legislative Assembly for British Columbia for Maple Ridge Mission. It didn't surprise me when he jumped over into politics because he's, um, I don't know if you, you got this sense from the interview with the, you did with him, but he's definitely a huge workaholic and uh, he's definitely an overachiever so that he would do something like that. It didn't surprise me actually that much. That's guitarist Paul Schmidt also speaking to me on Zoom from his home in Vancouver. He's eight years younger than Deeth and was actually friends with Deeth's younger brother. You can tell he's a little more casual and bohemian than Deeth, with short brown hair, a trim, short boxed beard, and wearing a white t-shirt. Half of his life has been in Mythos, but growing up, he heard a different sound. I was kind of a shredder in high school, like doing rock, like I love playing like Steve Vai and Van Halen and all that stuff. And um, the person who influenced me to play classical was actually Randy Rhodes, Ozzy Osbourne's guitar player, because I was a big fan of his guitar work. And he, I would read his interviews in guitar magazines and he would say how great classical guitar is and how it was like, you know, he thought it was the highest form of guitar. So uh, that's, I think, what interested me in that. He went on to get a degree in music performance from the University of British Columbia. Bob Deeth, on the other hand, had already studied piano before he wanted to rock, recording with the Canadian band Rhymes with Orange. Deeth left the band somewhat unceremoniously after two albums. For me, that didn't end very well, so actually Mythos was what actually cured my soul. <laughs> so getting together with Paul was actually cathartic for me, and, and it was very important at that stage of my life to sort of rediscover what music was all about. The initial concept of the duo was to write music for films. One of the things that I was looking to do is to try to get into the film industry to do film scoring. And so Paul and I started doing some demos together to just see if we could do some scores for film. And I'm not sure what happened, but it sort of took a life of its own. And we found that the actual, the pieces that we were creating kind of fit into what was going on in the scene back then because, you know, there was you know, Robert Miles and Enigma and Enya and all of these uh, interesting ambient sort of acoustic, instrumental, world-type groups that were coming out, and 
So we ended up uh, putting out an EP of our material, and we ended up getting commercial radio out of it, which was, I, considering we don't have lyrics, uh, <laughs> that was quite, a, quite a, a coup, I think. The song that got them there was November Dance. Bob was really surprised because um, I was telling him, I was like, let's take this to Z95, let's do a remix, and he didn't think they would play it, but they ended up playing it as one of their most played songs of the top chart of the year. So um, all my friends were starting to tell me, Paul, I'm getting sick of hearing your song on the radio. got signed to Higher Octave Records, which, along with Wyndham Hill and Narada Records, was one of the leading labels for New Age music in the 1990s. Yeah, well, that was weird. I mean, I think our problem is we never fit into categories very well. Even on Higher Octave, we weren't sort of true New Agey kind of artists. We were certainly in the general area, but I, I wouldn't say that we fit neatly into that New Age uh, pocket may have noticed a pronunciation difference in the band's name. You know, Mythos, Mythos, Tomato, Tomato, whatever, you know? Bob came up with the name and he always said Mythos, so I guess that's why I started saying Mythos. A stroll through pronunciations online brings quite a variety. Mythos. 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 I'm going to stick with Mythos. As long as you play our music. <laughs> mix of classical guitar, piano, and electronic keyboards was compelling, but on top of that, they added wordless female vocals. We were coming at it from trying to create textures and try to create atmosphere so we had felt that uh, lyrics might be a barrier to that and so when we originally brought Jennifer Scott in to do some vocals we asked her to try to do some of our melodies in vocalese and it just worked with what we were doing and so we ended up doing a lot more of that we brought in Christine Duncan who's another amazing singer so uh, between Jennifer and Christine you know we've done many many tracks using voice as an instrument. Vocals could be harmonious vocalese like this or wildly ecstatic, like those on Brazil and Planinata. So Planinata came about when I was at the 
Vancouver Library years ago in the world music section, just checking out some different world music CDs and listening to them on headphones in the library. And Planinata came out, and it was a Bulgarian folk song, and it was just the vocal. And so that's where that came from. And I took it to Bob, and I'm like, "This is so cool!" And uh, let's make a track out of this, make our own version of this, and and a song and stuff. Twenty-five collection contains fourteen tracks from across their career, plus five new songs that push the duo into new directions. Among them, "Legacy" reveals a slightly more aggressive approach. That has a lot to do with my son Cam. You know, "Legacy" that's part of the the reason for the naming of the song. I have two sons in the music industry, and uh, one of them uh, just—he's been working with an Australian producer out of Perth, and he's sort of indie rock. He goes under Cam Blake. And Father's Day uh, last year, he said, "Hey, let's write a song together, Dad." And so we we started writing a song, a piece, and we both realized, "Hey, this this could be Mythos." And then we got Paul in and said, "Hey, Paul, what do you think?" And he's like, "Yeah, that's kind of like sounds Mythos-ish." Mythos has always been a concept more than a band. They didn't perform live, and you won't find their faces on any of their covers. Photos of the band are pretty scarce, and they haven't done many interviews. We didn't want to be the face of it. We wanted the music to speak for itself, and so part of it was just not, not taking away the mystique of it by Bob coming out and doing an interview. <laughs> oh well, we blew that one. Mythos is celebrating 25 years, and they have a new collection titled 25 in Roman numerals. It's out now on Adagio Music. And in case you were confused, there is also a German band that came out of the 1970s space music scene called Mythos, and they are uh, still around. I'll have a link to 25 by the Canadian Mythos up in the posting for this podcast at echoes.org. Finally, let's celebrate the 22nd icon of Echoes, Patrick O'Hearn. Patrick O'Hearn has been one of the defining voices of modern electronic and synthesizer music. Since his debut album, Ancient Dreams, in 1985, he's been releasing finely crafted, deeply textured compositions on CDs like El Dorado and Indigo. There's a depth to Patrick O'Hearn's music that comes from a wide range of experience that includes straight-ahead jazz and MTV pop, sarcastic, technically challenging 
challenging rock and ethereal new age. Although he hasn't released a new album since 2011, he remains an icon of Echoes and was voted 22nd out of 30 icons. Kimberly Haas brings us the ancient dreams and history of Patrick O'Hearn. When Patrick O'Hearn's album Ancient Dreams came out in 1985, the veteran musician knew he had created something different. There was something that happened on that first record with the, with the way in, in which it all sort of came together, this Spartanish percussion and this sort of these wafting pads and textures and dynamics, soft passages that all of a sudden you'd have a huge crash of sound and reverb and everything. And it was so unconventional, it was so different from anything I'd, I'd done before. It may seem like Patrick O'Hearn's ancient dreams emerged out of nowhere, but before his auspicious solo debut, the 55-year-old composer had put in years on the fringes of the avant-garde and at the pinnacle of pop. While most of O'Hearn's albums are dominated by his synthesizer textures and melodies, his main instrument is actually bass, and he started out playing jazz. Dexter Gordon and, and uh, Charles Lloyd and Joe Henderson and Tony Williams Wow, yeah. I, I grew up as a tremendous fan of, of jazz music. It was thrilling when I got a chance to finally work with, with many of these musicians who I'd learned to play with by playing along with their records. O'Hearn has played and recorded jazz, and he still has a wonderful sound on acoustic upright bass. But he had a few more directions to explore, including one with the most iconoclastic figure of popular music, Frank Zappa. Oh, I was playing with all these brilliant, uh, legendary jazz figures on the acoustic double bass, and uh, I was all of a sudden stopped and did a, did a 180 degree turnaround. His form of composition is, I wouldn't exactly call it jazz, but um, there is so much room for creativity and improvisation, that, and he, he tries to, to, to bring that out of his musicians, that it was a, it was a wonderful transition to make. The beat goes on and I'm so Patrick O'Hearn's career has always revolved around an incestuous group of musicians. Terry Bozio was the drummer in that same Zappa band, and later on, he and O'Hearn would play with missing persons. Guitarist Peter Maunu and trumpeter Mark Isham are also longtime music companions. In the early 1980s, all four musicians were in a band together. Mark Isham recalls their concept when they formed Group 87. Group 87 was really an attempt to take some of the very interesting ideas of, of fusion jazz, put it together with some of the inter interesting ideas of sort of avant-garde English rock and, and see what would happen.
After a few years with Frank Zappa, O'Hearn left to join a group that would change his life, although not in the way he expected. Missing Persons was one of the first video hit bands. Songs like Walking in L.A. and Words were soundtracks for the remote control generation. And Patrick O'Hearn was there, playing bass and wearing an elaborate moose-enhanced pompadour. It's far removed from anything else he's ever done, but it led to the music that would carry him through the next 10 years. The band would be rehearsing or we'd be playing concerts and whatnot, and I'd go back, either go back to my motel room or hotel room, whatever, on the road, because I always took uh, electronic instruments with me that I could set up in the hotel room. You know, I just sort of feeling somewhat depressed and ready to cry in my glass of, of Cabernet Sauvignon, just <laughs> turn on the machines and, and start playing this music and, and almost, you know, almost like gypsy melodies. I mean, I would basically be on the verge of tears because uh, it, was, it was something musical and it was mine. It was, it was what I wanted to do and, and it was my little fantasy of freedom there that uh, I could get away from all the politics and drudgery of of the structure and, and everything of missing persons. You know. He got to try out some of these pieces when an old friend, keyboard Stan Siegel, asked O'Hearn to produce his album, Another Time, Another Place. Patrick O'Hearn wound up writing three pieces for Dan Siegel's album and shaped the sound design of the rest. Patrick O'Hearn gave these tracks to former Tangerine Dream member Peter Bauman. Bauman was starting up his own label, Private Music, and O'Hearn's Ancient Dreams turned out to be its signature release in 1985. He went on to make several more recordings with Private Music reaching a commercial peak with his third CD, River's Gonna Rise. That album got O'Hearn extensive airplay on the growing number of wave stations at the time. But even back in 1988, he wasn't happy with the company. I have a problem with that. I've never liked that kind of music. You know, you'd find me in the front row of a Guns N' Roses concert just with my shirt off shaking a, a length of, of chain before you'd, you'd find me sitting... Uh, you know, complacent, uh, waiting for Kenny G to take the stage. <laughs> but what can I say? But that's the direction Private Music wanted him to take. Instead, O'Hearn's follow-up was a dark, turbulent album called El Dorado in 1989. El Dorado signaled Patrick O'Hearn's exit from Private Music. He made a few more albums, but in 1995 started his own label, Deep Cave. With his first album on the label, Trust, he said he was trying to get back to the spirit that spawned ancient dreams. Something I think I'm trying to rediscover. Something that was that was apparent in, in the very earliest stages with ancient dreams, which was uh, a complete disregard uh, for format in terms of the the commercial aspects of how music is is marketed in this day and age. You're not really shooting for anything except uh, excellence in music. 
deep cave was folded, and Patrick O'Hearn embraced the digital download age by launching PatrickO'Hearn.com. His music has also changed. It's gotten more introspective and austere, with sound design and architectural space that's more contemporary classical than ambient. He's even picked up the lap steel guitar on his latest CD, Glaciation. I love the, the sound of the Hawaiian electric guitar, but how my hands uh, went to work with it was entirely different. And of course, I just gave it a, a healthy dose of reverb and, uh, and ambient effects to sort of spread it out. Kimberly Haas bringing us Patrick O'Hearn, drawing from the seven interviews I've conducted with him over the last 35 years. Patrick also played one of the very first Echoes Living Room Concerts in 1989. Patrick has been relatively quiet in the last decade. There have been a few soundtracks and collaborations along his path. He was a sideman for John Hyatt for a while, and he was on the HBO show Treme, playing bass in a New Orleans band. Toward the end of last year, he released a couple of very ambient singles, though, so maybe the long-awaited album is coming. He is the 22nd of 30 Icons of Echoes. Patrick O'Hearn, still one of my personal favorite artists on the show. He pops up briefly in a live performance shot on the recent Zappa documentary. Up on the Echoes website, I've got a list of five essential Patrick O'Hearn albums. Just go to echoes.org. That's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G. Next week on the Echoes Podcast, I've just got one feature, but it's going to be a good one. Gary Newman, who has a great new album out called Intruder. Subscribe to the Echoes Podcast so you don't miss any of these gems. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes Podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio, somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want.